Father, we do pray that all unity may be restored. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you go to the city of Rome, if you go to the Vatican, if you go to the Cathedral of St. Peter there, if you go to the crypt underneath that beautiful church, you will see over two dozen sarcophagi of various popes through the centuries. The most famous one, the most beautiful one, decorated by Michelangelo, is of Julius II. But I've been there twice, and my favorite one is the sarcophagus of John the Twenty-Third. Uh, you can remember the numbers, the Twenty-Third, because in Spanish and English, his name is One Two Three. Okay, thank you. And around the edge of his sarcophagus are these three words: ut sint. Unum, ut in order that, saint, may they be, it's the subjunctive, and then unum, one, may they be one. These are the words that Jesus prays in this 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, the so-called high priestly prayer. And he prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for us, those who would believe through the teaching and the preaching of the disciples, and so that includes everybody in this room, he prayed for us, may they be one. But the sad fact of the matter is that the church today is not one. Uh, John Twenty-Third is one of my favorite saints. He made this theme of the oneness of the church a major thrust of his papacy. I could stand up here all day and tell anecdotes about this wonderful man. He was funny. He was beautiful. He was pastoral. He was caring. He was extraordinarily funny. He was wise. I'll just tell two. One is when he was elected Pope. He was in a black cassock and everybody is scrambling around like crazy to get ready for the great moment when the Pope in his brand new white soutane comes out on the balcony to bless the city and the world, uh, Urbis at Orbis. And uh, it's a great moment. Everybody was busy except him. He had nothing to do. Uh, he's sitting in this little tiny room, and here comes an electrician to put the phones back in. One of the rules about the Vatican during those days, uh, during a conclave, all the phones were removed from the entire city. And so this guy came in, he's laying on the ground, he's unscrewing things, and he's twisting wires and pulling caps off and re-twisting them together. And here... Angelo Roncalli is sitting there chit-chatting with him. Are you married? Uh, got kids? Got five? One in the oven? Uh, do you like your job? Do you like the Vatican? Love it? Love it? Uh, are you well paid? The guy turned around and looked at him and he said, Are you kidding me? My brother-in-law is an electrician in the city of Rome. He makes 25% more than I do. So Roncalli says, Well, gosh, uh, why don't you go work in the city of Rome? And he sat up and looked with scorn. He didn't know who it was. This priest sitting there looked with scorn at him and said, Father, it's the church. Putting him in his place. Well, one of the beautiful things about him was that when he became Pope, the very first thing he did was instituted a law that all blue-collar workers, carpenters, electricians, plumbers, 
would get the equivalent pay of their counterparts in the city of Rome. He cared about the common man. Well, as the conversation went on, this guy's laying down there and he's still messing with the phone and he turns and he says, and you, Father, where are you from? And he's thinking he's from some small town nearby, some village maybe up in the mountains. He's just, he looked like a peasant and he's sitting there in a black cassock with no other identifier. And he says, and you, Father, where are you from? What do you do? And he said, well, when I woke up this morning... I was the Archbishop of Venice, but I think I've just been elected Pope. (laughs) You can see this guy thinking, oh my gosh, I'm morally lecturing the Pope on how he should do his job. He was an incredibly funny man. Uh, His predecessor always had these very strict, formal, rigid uh, press meetings with, with the press. Uh, he'd come in and read a paper, and then uh, and they stood for the whole thing, and then the Pope walked out. Ron Colley was there, and he said, what are we doing in this hot room? Is this killing me? He said, i got this beautiful garden, and i got 12 gardeners working on it, and I'm all by myself. Why don't you all come down with me, and we'll just walk in the garden and, and do the press conference walking around. They'd never seen that before, and they're kind of nervous asking him questions on the side and looking at things and enjoying the garden. And one of them said, uh, Your Holiness, there's a lot of mystery about the Vatican. And, well, you know, people wonder exactly how many people work for the Vatican. He stopped and he scratched his grizzled chin and he said, How many work for the people work in the Vatican? I would say... About half of them. His biography is full of these wonderful anecdotes like that. He was the Pope who called the Vatican II Council into being. His advisor said, why are you doing this? We don't need a council. And he went over and he raised one of these 12-foot windows and he waved and he started dragging in the air and he said, to get some fresh air into the church. And that's what he wanted to do, and that's what he did. One of the most beautiful things he did during his time, and this is in the uh, Vatican II documents, is the whole nature of the relationship with non-Roman Catholics. Because up to that time, the relationship with non-Catholics was as heretics and schismatics and plain old-fashioned damn Protestants. And he was a man who took to heart what Jesus prayed for in this prayer, I pray that they may all be one. And he sought that. He wanted to be one with the whole church and took a major step. He invited Protestants to sit in on the Vatican hearings. They couldn't vote, but they were there to hear the debates and even to join the debates along the way. Exactly 10 years after he died, 1972, I was in Rome. I was there in a private audience with the Pope. Okay, don't be impressed. I was impressed when I was told I was going to be in a private audience with the Pope. Maybe the 16 of us from our program uh, from the University of Kansas, we got in there and we had the private audience with 700 other people in this place where we were. But the Pope came down to the front. There was a Methodist conference of American Methodist pastors meeting in Rome. And Pope Paul came down 
And he walked to the edge of the stage and he said, We welcome to the eternal city my fellow ministers of the gospel and my dear brothers in Christ. Now, he would not have said that if it had not been for John the 23rd. My brothers in Christ. Every Christian is a brother or sister in Christ. When I do evangelism, I sometimes get pushed on the issue of, you know, you want me to agree with you, but look, you Christians are in disagreement. You all disagree with one another. So why should I believe the Gospels you presented as opposed to these people? Two things to be said about that. Number one, um, it is a stumbling block. And I am ashamed of the divisions in the church. The prayer that we pray that says are unhappy divisions. They are unhappy divisions. But I would add this. I don't know one minister who isn't grieved as I am that there is division within the church. I'm an Anglican. If you cut me, I will bleed Book of Common Prayer. I love the way we do Christian life and discipleship together as Anglicans. But... I will happily walk in to a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, a Roman Catholic church, and worship with my brothers in Christ in those places. As long as they don't pass out any snakes, uh, I'm, I'm happy. Because they're my brothers in Christ. The church is one. You know, it'd be fun to go home and take the bulletins and find out how many times the word one or unity appear in this uh, text that we have before us this morning. There are four realms of the church, and thus there are four realms of church unity. Organizational, moral, doctrinal, and relational. The organizational unity is attained by submission to a common legal polity. It asks, do I, do we, mutually submit to the canons, the constitutions, the bylaws, and the protocols of this church? Its highest virtue is order. Moral unity is attained by a common moral behavior. It asks, do I, do we, act morally as God has set forth in Scripture? Its highest virtue is goodness. Doctrinal unity is attained by a common persuasion of a common body of teaching. Let's just summarize that and say the Nicene Creed says almost says it all. It asks the question, do I, do we believe the right thing? Its highest virtue is truth. And the fourth is relational or koinonia unity. It is attained by mutual love. It asks, do I, do we, love our brother and sister as ourself? And its highest virtue is love. I think I told you in my first sermon here that I would introduce to this congregation during my time five Greek words and five Hebrew words. The truth is I totally made up those numbers, but I figured it gave me room to move. So here's one of those words, the word Greek word koinonia. And the very word coin, I hope you see, is our English word coin. And koinonia means common, 
Koinonia are what we have in common. And Nia is a variation of life. So Koinonia is our common life. It can be translated fellowship. I prefer the translation common life. But it's how we are together. Not just how we are together here in worship, but how we are together in the parking lot and in the foyer, in the McGlynn Hall. It's being together. Not enough to be unified in truth or doctrine or morals, and certainly not the canons and the bylaws, but to be united in heart, in concord, in koinonia fellowship. I love that word, Concord. Con is with. Core is heart. With heart. To be in concord one another is to have our hearts together. You know, I'm an heir of the 18th century English evangelicals. People like John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, John Newton. And there's kind of an over-pietistic language from these guys that when they would travel around England, they wouldn't go to the local tavern or Holiday Inn. They would visit other Church of England clergymen. It was expected to stay in their homes. But they would come to the door and they would open the door and they would say, Oh, my brother, is your heart with my heart? That's a beautiful invitation. Is your heart with my heart? We have this passage from uh, the first Peter reading this morning. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and return to a humble mind. Or the reading from the other epistle lesson from Ephesians 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, Bearing one another with love. That's the unity of the church that we must have in our lives. When I was a college student, I did a lot of counseling on junior high and senior high retreats. We went to this Presbyterian camp in Wilson County and about halfway between here and Wichita. Um, Nice camp. But the theme that we were addressing was the fact that the kids in the youth group were cliquish. They hung out like with like. And we all do that. I like to sit down and talk to people that have my interests. We all sit down with the people, basically, if there's nine different classes, upper, upper, middle, upper, lower, upper, upper, middle class, we like to sit with our group of people. You go to high schools and you can look in the cafeteria where the kids are sitting and who they're sitting with. And here's the jock sitting together. And here's the giggly girl sitting together. And here's the snooty girls sitting together. And here's the scholars and the nerds and the votechies sitting together. And we looked our noses down at the votech people. The people who were doing vocational technology skills. The people who would end up fixing my car and fixing my house. But we were snobs. And they wore white socks. And we scorned them because they wore white socks. We wore black socks. And as we walked down the halls, we'd check out the socks to see whether they were one of us or not. And if they came to our table at lunch, we'd check it out. And we'd sit just with our people. How shameful. And you come into the church... And people will do the same thing. 
Now, this youth minister, his name was Larry Sharpless, had grown this youth group to about 65 kids. But you know for a fact that with 65 kids, he had all sorts and conditions, as our prayer book wonderfully says. And they were all over the social and economic spectrum. And he was so upset because this clickiness which happened at school was happening in the youth group. And even as we sat together at dinner tables and lunch tables, the cliques sat together. And we wanted to break that. And so Larry had this one speaker, a friend of his, come in from another state and another church somewhere else. And he was teaching. And Larry was kind of the sidekick along the way. Now, we were told this was going to happen. We college counselors, but the high school kids did not know this. But at one point, the minister got up there, and the minister got up there, and he, he said, oh, thank you, Larry, but we're not going to do that. What I want to do now, and i got a plan, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And Larry said, well, no, that's not what we had discussed, that I had planned to do this. And he said, we're not going to do that. No, thank you, but i got a better idea. And he started doing his idea. Larry exploded. He goes, you just come in here and take over the group. And you think because you're a better preacher and you're better educated and you're charming and nice that you can, oh, I'm just sick of it. And he stomped off. And, you know, we even knew it was going to happen and we were breathless. We'd never seen Larry like that. And he went stomping off and slammed the door around the corner. Of course, he didn't leave. He was kind of hiding around the corner. And this guy said to the group, golly. What happened? How do you feel? And he started asking the kids, and some of the girls were in tears. Some people couldn't even speak. They were so upset. And after they, they had emoted, then Larry came walking back in, embraced his friend, and said, look, this was a setup. We were doing this in order to make the point. But if you were offended by the breaking of the fellowship here, this is what we feel all the time when we see you doing your clickishness. And we want it to change. Everyone in this room is a brother of Christ or a sister of Christ and is entitled and needs the love that comes from each one of us. We have this wonderful psalm, Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren live together in unity. The church is to be one. We say the Nicene Creed every Sunday. And in it we say what are called the four marks of the church. That I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now to say the church is one and to say that the church is apostolic, I'm sorry, Catholic, is in some way to say the same thing. Kataholos is according to the whole. And this is a church for everybody. Not a church for the rich people. Not a church for the poor people. It's not a church for the city people. It's not a church for the country people. It's not a church for the military people. It's not a church for the masons. It's for everyone. That's what the word Catholic means. And if we are going to be truly Catholic, and if we're going to be truly one, everyone belongs. And we must make them know that they belong and that we're glad to see them. We have this wonderful prayer from the whole state of Christ Church. We'll pray in a moment. Beseeching you to inspire continually the universal church, universi, universi, that's one truth, it's one in truth as well, the universal church with the spirit of truth, unity, 
and concord. Is my heart with your heart? And we want that together. When I was in Pittsburgh, I was part of a church which had a school attached, and I was on the school board with them. And there were problems in the school, and there were problems on the board. And we got a very expensive consultant to come in. And he said to us, if there is division on the school board, there will be division in the school. You have to be one here before you can be one out there. So Jesus prays this Koinonia unity prayer. John chapter 17, verse 1. I pray that they may be one, listen, so that the world may know you have sent me. What is persuasive about the Gospel? I mean, I have shelves and shelves of apologetic books at home about the truth of the Gospel. Are my people that I'm trying to evangelize reading those books? They do not read those books. But what do they read? They read us. And they come into a place like this, and I've heard this from some people, those people love one another. They enjoy being in church. That has more weight than anything else. That's what Jesus said. That they may be one so that the world may know that you, Father, has sent me. Why do we know that Christ was sent by the Father? Because we see that love in the world. And the testimony of the early church was that. The Christians said, of the non-Christian world said of the Christian world, see how they love one another. That was the persuasive. So concord for, or godly love is essential to the mission of the church. I want to close with three examples here, all from the New Testament. One is from the Fellowship of the Twelve, the Apostles. And note especially two disciples. We don't know many details, but we know enough to know this. One disciple was Simon the Zealot, super nationalistic conservative, and Levi the tax collector, a sellout to the Roman establishment. We could say that one of them was wearing a Make America Great Again uh, hat, and the other was a Bernie Sanders groupie. And they're both disciples. And we don't know this, but Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. I really hope when I get to heaven I discovered, He said, Simon, Levi, you guys are going together. And they learned to be one. We have to learn to be one. Uh, Terry Fulham, a wonderful Episcopal priest. How many people know Terry Fulham? Anybody here know that name? Wonderful guy. About a, a half a dozen of you. He was saying that the church is like a pond with a bunch of ducks in it. And here you got the Presbyterian ducks. And they're all swimming decently and in order. And here's the Episcopal ducks. And they're all swimming two by two in procession. And here's the Roman ducks. And they're quacking in Latin. And here's the Pentecostal ducks, and they're just quacking. And here's the Baptist ducks, and they're swimming underwater. And there's fences between them all, and they're not interacting with one another. It's not one church. And how will God, the Holy Spirit, change that? He's going to rain down the water of His Holy Spirit, and He's just going to lift the water until they cover all those fences, and then they can mingle with one another. Do you feel that? Do you want that in your life? Because I've had that. I was telling somebody during the break, we were in 
in, in Philippi. We read from the book of Philippians. I was in Philippi. And I was on an island in the middle of the river where Lydia was baptized. And it was half the size of this chancel up here. And I was doing communion. The altar guild was terrified we did not have enough bread. So be really careful here. And I'm body of Christ. And they'd come to me. And then they walked over this little tiny, 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 tiny bridge to the next island. And the priest there had, I think it was John Gass, had the chalice for them and, and they received the wine. And they came up and I saw this bus pulled out. And these Koreans got out. There must have been like 60 of them. And they got out and they came up and they got in line for communion. And I thought... Well, do they know what's going on? And then all of a sudden I looked up, and there's this woman in front of me. She's about four feet ten, and she looks up. And I'm sitting there holding the bread, and I look at her, and she looks at me, and I look to her like, should you be here? And she pointed at a little cross, and she said, Jesus Christ, in my heart. And I said, that's good enough. The body of Christ, the bread of heaven. That was my sister in Christ. And I'm sure most of you have stories like that where you have crossed those divides to the other people. The two other stories, one is from the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 4. Paul writes this, I entreat you, Odious, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And I also ask you also, true yoke fellow, we don't know who it was, but it was the minister, the pastor there at that church, help these women. For they've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. How many books of life are there? Is there a Presbyterian book of life and an Anglican book? No, there's one book of life because there's one church. And he says, these two women aren't agreeing. There's a division. So he's saying to the pastor, get those women together and get them reconciled. We need to be one in every way. And my last illustration comes from two missionaries, Paul of Tarsus and John Mark of Jerusalem. John Mark of Jerusalem was a teenager uh, many people think that the young man who was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Roman soul, or not the, the temple guards grabbed him and pulled his cloak off and he ran off in his underwear. Uh, they think that was John Mark. This is an autobiographical hello from the writer. Because John Mark did go on to become a missionary working with Peter in Rome. And so he wrote this Gospel, which we call the Gospel of Mark, but might more properly call it the Gospel of Peter. But that's John Mark. And here he is, probably in his late 20s. Paul and Barnabas are on the first missionary journey. They go through Cyprus. And at the beginning of the journey, it's Barnabas and Paul did this, and Barnabas and Paul did that, and Barnabas and Paul did that other. But by the end of the visit, two weeks to the other side of the island, it's now Paul and Barnabas. They've switched the order. And Barnabas was a relative of John Mark, and there might have been a little bit of jealousy. Gosh, do we get jealousy in the church? And he was upset about that. So when they went up and landed on Asia Minor at Pamphylia and wanted to go through the Cachillian gates up to the Galatian fields to evangelize, John Mark went home. He was mad. And Paul was mad at John Mark. And so later on, after the Jerusalem Council and after they returned to Antioch, they said, let's go on another missionary journey. 
And Paul says, that would be great. And Barnabas says, and let's take John Mark. And Paul says, no way. No way. I, I want nothing to do with that kid. He deserted us in Pamphylia. No, I will not go with him. And the text says, Acts chapter 15, verse 36, and there arose a sharp division so that they separated from one another. Now, we read through the Acts pretty quick, but I don't want to miss this. What a heartbreaking story. A sharp division. Now, it's a happy ending. Because we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul is in prison. He will die on this time. Maybe the last letter he will ever write. And he writes to Timothy, and he says, get John Mark and bring him with you to me, for he is very useful in serving me. I don't know who got to him, but somebody, probably Barnabas, the the peacemaker, the reconciler, got these two men together and reconciled Paul and John Mark. We are to be a church in which there is that kind of reconciliation. Yes, Eutyche and Syndicate get in a spit fighting with one another, but end it. We are to be one church. One church. Because we have one God and one Lord. I want to close by praying together in unison. Take your prayer books and turn with me to page 646. When you're praying, if you don't know what to pray, this is a good section to turn to in the back of the prayer book and just select any of these prayers at random and pray them. But this is not at random. Page 646, colic number four for the unity of all Christian people. And I want to read this together in unison. Let us pray. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace to take to heart the grave dangers we are in through our many divisions. Deliver your church from all enmity and prejudice and everything that hinders us from godly union. As there is one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so make us all to be of one heart and of one mind, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and love, that with one voice we may give you praise through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God in glory. Amen.